Welcome to Critiquing the Creeps, the podcast where I, your host, Danielle, bully my friends, mostly Amy Quinn, into watching horror movies with me so we can discuss them. Howdy, Amy. Howdy, howdy. You know what, I, you know what we're watching this week? Uh, today we're watching the 1982 horror classic Poltergeist. Directed by one Toby Hooper. And I'm going to be real, I, uh, I really enjoy this film. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely a lot of fun. It's 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 fun camp horror, I think. I'm also quite glad it came out before the ratings added a PG-13 in there, so a bunch of children got scarred watching this. Oh my god, yeah, no, like Steven Spielberg. This was uh, written and produced by Steven Spielberg, and between this and Temple of Doom, he was just committed to traumatizing children, which I stand by. I think children should be a little traumatized. Uh, but they shouldn't have to watch Temple of Doom. Uh, I honestly didn't watch that as a child. I saw that first as an adult and was like, nah, man, I'm good. Yeah. It, <laughs> I can feel bad. like George Lucas on that one. Don't worry. We're mm. good. <laughs> so I'm trying to figure out where we should get started. Cause I so that should we start with a quick breakdown of the plot? Yes. Do a breakdown of the plot. All right, so Poltergeist is a story about the Freeling family who live on, like, a suburban development in, like, Southern California. The dad, uh, Craig T. Nelson, as Steve Freeling, is a salesman for the... Is a salesman for the, um, like, real estate company that runs the development. development. Yes, and they start experiencing, like, strange happenings in their house. So they experience strange hauntings, and these the, the spirits end up kidnapping their daughter, Carol Ann, and they need to contract the host, the work of a bunch of, like, ghost investigators, as well as a psychic, to try and get her back. That's a pretty good, like, concise view of the plot. Yeah, it's I a very simple plot, but, like, I think it really comes down to, like, the presentation of the movie. <laughs> Because I really feel like this movie is mostly about the family unit. No, you you get very well, like, the characters here, I'm going to say, are, like, very broadly archetypical. Like, this is very much, like, an idea of what, like, the stereotypical American suburban family is in, like, the 80s. The performances especially do a lot to, like, flesh the characters out and, like, give them, like, a lot more, like, depth and character than that would imply. I also feel like they do enough changes where it's it's a little bit different. Like, you have three kids that have decent age differences. The parents are still suburban-y, but they talk to each other like they actually are in a relationship and they have a sex life and they smoke pot. They're the perfect encapsulation of like, you know, the suburban American family. They smoke weed together and read autobiographies about Ronald Reagan's true centrism. Mm -hmm. And they uh, uh, sometimes sleepwalk. (laughs) I actually, I love the slow burn of this film. No, this is true. Like the first half is very much like it does slowly establish this. Like you get to know the family a lot. You could probably cut the opening down a little bit. It's the one thing I would say with the whole yeah. guy riding with the beer and the children with the remote control cars kind of tripping them up yeah, and everything. You, yeah, like it's it, it, it feels just extremely Spielbergian, like the opening. And you know about the kind of the behind the scenes debate about this film, right? Yeah, I know there I know there is like a lot of debate about like who directed it, actually? Uh, off, yes, like, there's a question of authorship. And my understanding, 
the the crew will stand by Toby Hooper directed this. Yes. But Spielberg could not direct this due to other contractual obligations, but he wrote it and he produced it. Yeah. He he was very much on set. So I like to view this as a collaboration between the two because there are some things like, no, this would be from the guy who did Chainsaw Massacre. This wouldn't be Spielberg. No, absolutely. Like, yes, Spielberg was making E.T. at the time. This extremely like the opening shots in the suburb look like they're filmed. Like they were essentially filmed very like near each other. So like it has very big E.T. vibes to it. Like this was a new development at the time. They actually shot in a development that no one had lived in before. And the person who bought this house was not expecting to have people coming to go say like because the thing with horror fans, a lot of them will go house crashing. And if it's featured in the movie, you'll have horror fans taking pictures of your house. Yeah, of course. Now you get you get stuff like. The, the poor guy whose house was on Breaking Bad. People would not stop throwing pizzas on his roof. Like, you know, like people want to see these locations. Mm-hmm. My understanding is um, it's very cordial, though. A lot of the people that come by, like they sometimes have conversations with the owners. The owners are very, uh, they, they have good spirits about it. They take it with stride. That's good. You know, that's that's i think a good way to handle it it's one of those few movies you don't get a lot of them where your ghost films is always the house is really really old or this or that this one's new development and i want to say it's probably the biggest push for like ancient indian burial ground i know you have it kind of as an aspect of a lot of stephen king novels and stuff yeah but i don't think it was mainstream until this film yeah, no, like, I mean, I think because in this one, it's not an Indian burial ground. It's like a regular cemetery. Oh, wait, sorry. That's the sequel. I blend yeah. them sometimes. Yeah, the, yeah, sorry. The sequel is it's interesting in this one. Like they do have like the real estate developer that like Craig T. Nelson's character works for. Like he just very explicitly dismissively is like, oh, it's not like it's an Indian burial ground or anything. It's just people. And it's just like I do kind of feel like even at this point, the plot device is just kind of being seen as how trite and shallow it kind of is. Yeah. Like it's it's kind of like a displacement fiction for like American people. It's like addressing like the issues, like you know, like like the damage that like the, like the colonizers and settlers of this did to indigenous people. But like the protag- people dealing with are always just like you know like nice white people essentially like there's not like any culpability really just like oh this thing happened and now it's we have to deal with like the ramifications of it Mm -hmm. and all and also there is of course like the idea like of like this being something that is in the past as opposed to like the reality where like indigenous peoples are still here like you know like they're still dealing with like the issues of colonialization and like imperialism and all that it never ended it's still going on i'm morbidly curious about the 2015 one because i haven't seen it but it just i saw it in the theater <laughs> oh i'm so sorry like it like i watched the trailer for it because i was just genuinely curious and it's just like it's the same beats as the original but like none yeah, of drones, like, the ima- like none of the imaginativeness like none of the style of it i think the new one really misses the heart weirdly enough yeah and that for me comes from the way the family unit works because a lot of times in these movies it's the dad 
that's the one that's doing all the job, taking care of the family. Like, oh, my wife is crazy, blah, blah, blah. I'm the rational one. Yeah. And in this one, it really isn't. The mom... She's a stay-at-home mom, but you see her struggling to do the work, and she has her own autonomy, where I think this is more feminist than most horror films, especially from this time period, even though horror at this time is known for both being feminist and aggressive with the slasher film. No, for certain. Like, this is... Like, uh, Joe Beth Williams is Diane Freeling, I would argue, is, like, the central character around which, like, a lot of this film hinges. Well... We have that thing with Carol Ann having this kind of, it sounds weird we watched The Shining right before this, but you still have this like psychic energy within her family line that she passed on to Carol Ann. Yes. Who honestly is perfectly cast. This kid is fantastic. Oh yeah, no. um, Like Heather O'Rourke is like an amazing child actor in this. Like she she does a great job in this. She has that thing where she says the weird things kids say, but she actually still feels like a kid that's written for her age, which is really hard to do because I know she's playing younger than she is, but she actually nails it. There, There is like a, an innocence and a youthfulness, but like she definitely nails like there's a lot of emotions that this character has to cover. Like, you know, like the character goes for a lot in this movie. She and she's out for a good half of the movie. I mean, I think she gets kidnapped around like the one third mark at like thirty five minutes, where she's like yeah. pulled in through that closet. I think they just took a lot of cool things with ghosts that you don't really uh, even, especially with the resurgence of ghost movies in the twenty tens, the teens. None of them had this energy. It was all more. I feel like more rooted in religion. Versus like yeah. this where it's more, let's think about the fantastical elements. What would the afterlife look at? How would these mechanics work? And they really did a lot of work trying to make how the weird elements of the haunting work. Because I know there are kids this, to this day that are traumatized from the go- um, the clown doll. You have oh, the tree God, the scene. And you have like, there are iconic moments in this movie when you think about ghost stories, you think about them, but they don't really show up in other films. The lore around like the ghosts in this is like just genuinely fascinating. It's like, oh, like there is a like physical entrance and exit to like this afterlife, like where all these ghosts are. And it's like just physically a place characters can go like Carol Ann gets like sucked into there and like they have to go inside this realm physically to get her back like it's definitely something like that you don't see a lot of I'm gonna say the first time I watched this movie which as it turns out was not watching it for this video like, oh I, I I made you watch that in college but we were drinking very heavily at, during yeah that no movie. like I was like I just had this deeply uncanny experience when I was watch rewatching this movie for uh, just like realizing I had seen this movie before <laughs> like it was around the time the kid is like staring up at the tree and like having all of like because it's a very archetypical moment like it feels like the kind of thing that like a character like a Stephen King novel would have like this very archetypical typical childhood fear and then i'm realizing no wait i'm not recognizing a trope this is i've literally seen this movie before i recognize this nightmare clown (laughs) yeah no that was a night i also tried to make you watch christine but i sent you that lifetime like movie instead with the killer car oh my god oh no which i still love that yeah that was the best movie like riffing we've ever done 
Oh, it was it was delightful. Death a car. He drives like a moron. <laughs> but like this movie, it has a lot of heart to it. No, this is true. Genuinely, like one of my favorite parts to this is like where the mom is showing where uh, Diane is showing Craig T. Nelson's character like the weird haunting that she has discovered while he's been away at work. Oh, like, it was so fun. I really love the fact she like put the work into finding the mechanics and like yes. it's not. Oh, it's a weird like the ghost dropped my keys. See, it's like, no, it's actual like it moves furniture. It's not like she just genuinely has just such energetic jumping in the air glee as like she shows him the, the like chair moving across. I really love like the element where like you also have Carol Ann who's like showing it off like but she's also like I've done this a thousand times. Okay, mom. I'll yeah, show no, like, dad. <laughs> <laughs> no, she's she like yeah, she's been talking to the ghosts on the TV all this time. Like she knows about this, like it has it really sets up the the actual buildup of like how the static kicks in after a certain time period and that's when the ghosts become a little bit more active. Actually really it's established more through diegetic versus them explaining it to us and that it also just does a lot of work in the setting to build that up. No, absolutely. The first half of this film feels very different than the second half of this film. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, you have stuff like, oh, like, I'm fighting with the neighbor over our remote control, which I got to talk about just how utterly incomprehensible, like, so much of the stuff about, like, old TVs and horror movies has <laughs> to be. It's like, oh, yeah, like, your neighbor's remote can change your your television. That was At a the thing, end though. Yeah, like at the end of the day, they would play the national anthem and then the TV would go off for the night. Technology's wild. The 80s were a different time from yeah. now. No, like I absolutely understand why there are so many horror movies that like play off like that element because it is absolutely batshit to look at in isolation. <laughs> like it's just like, oh, yeah, we all just used to play our nation's anthem at the end of the day over footage of like American flags and the Lincoln Monument. And we just all acted like this was normal and not like insane jingoistic propaganda. Well, it wasn't on every station. There was still late night, like late night television would take off with, uh, I mm. forget his fucking name. Johnny Carson. Um, yeah. Yep. Uh, you, you, and that's how we kind of got like the stuff that like, college kids would listen to or watch and stuff like that. But that's a tangent for another day. Oh, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I was more referring to that hard line between after Caroline gets kidnapped and you have the family that's like shows up and finds the ghost investigators. And I love in this movie how like like I love in these sorts of movies like this is a thing that happens in the changeling too. It just you can just find somebody who does like ghost investigating. I absolutely love the woman that they find. Uh, I think her name was um, Geraldine Fitzgerald. Am I confusing her with a different one? Um, which one are you talking about? The, 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 the one of the three women. Sorry, that's the, the three people, the woman and the two guys that came in to do the ghost stuff. Oh, yeah. Uh, she's uh, that was Beatrice Strait as Dr. Lesh. Thank you. I yes. was I was confusing her with uh, Poltergeist 2 character. <laughs> Oh, yes. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, guys. These movies blend for me, and I watched one right after the other because I was like, You're I'm already lost. watching Poltergeist. I'm going to go into the sequel. 
I actually like the sequel. It's a controversial opinion, so they they're blending. You're getting lost in the poltergeist cinematic universe. Oh no! Oh no! No more cinematic universes, please. Can we just have like I'm okay with sequels, but no like cinematic. Like, don't give me that Conjuring Nun universe. Get that Ouija oh, shit out of here. That did remind me of something that I did want to talk about, which was. The kids' room. What about it? All of the commercialization and kids' product, like toys and product placement in it. And you've got all the Star Wars stuff. He's like the alien poster. He's reading a Captain America comic. Gee, kid, someday everything in your room is going to generate so much interest for the shareholders of the Disney Corporation. <laughs> uh, oh my God, you're right. No, no, they bought out Fox. They own Alien now. Yeah, the, no, Disney owns everything in this kid's room now. That blows my mind because those were three different corporations at that time. Yeah, no, it's messed up. But I also like the fact that even though they're shown as being like a wealthy middle class family, you still have the like the two younger kids sharing a bedroom. Do we want to talk about the kids a little bit? Because they all have their own little archetypes going on. Yeah. First off, I did just want to say like in like the corporate moment, there is like a moment when like they're looking at like all of the stuff floating around the room. And the kid's TIE fighter toy flies by and it makes the noise like the spaceships do in Star Wars. And I just want to say, like, there is a direct line for the history of cinema from that moment to the Ryan Reynolds vehicle free guy. I've never seen it. And that's all I'm going to say about that. I I, I stand by that's not a real movie. It's just a trailer that I've had to watch for two years. You're correct. (laughs) It's not a a real movie. Even if you've seen it, it's not a real movie. Well, since I have gone into my little hole of indie horror lately, I have not seen many new things. I I do plan on seeing Dune, though. I really want to see Dune. Yeah, no. Honestly, good for you. Watch more indie stuff. I'm going to be real, though. I like indie stuff. I make indie stuff. Other people, I'm friends with indie people that make things. A lot of it is shit. There's a lot of garbage, but it's fun to watch the garbage because at least I'm watching something that's not going to a a corporation that's not paying people right. Yeah. So did you want to talk more about uh, Dr. Lesh and the Ghost Hunters? Yes. There's this moment like halfway through, I want to say maybe a little bit further, yeah. Where uh, she and the mom, Diane, they have a full on conversation where it really feels like they're the ones holding things together. Like the dad's just there. He, he's a shell of himself at that point. But it's literally two women are like making this thing happen to save. Yeah, no, it's no, I, I love that scene. Like they are just like shooting the shit and like drinking whiskey out of a flask together. Yeah. But it is so great like it's from 1982 and i still don't get movies with that now it's like really ahead of its time for being something that appears so generic can i be real with you yeah i ship dr lesh and the mom so much you do you honey you do you they they (laughs) genuinely have so much good chemistry together like i just want these two to be happy I, I'm a friendship kind of person. Like, Craig I want T. Nelson them to be can take care life. of the kids, run off with her. <laughs> the scene is really good to me. Like, I do want to talk just for a moment about, like, the concept of the Bechtel test. Yeah, I have issues with it. Nothing yeah, to do like, with Ms. Bechtel herself. <laughs> yes. But I feel like the Bechtel test as a litmus test is really holding us back because people think, oh, I passed the Bechtel test by doing this one extra scene. It makes it a good movie versus like, I think it kind of came out around Pacific Rim where you had one character who, like the film does not pass the Bechtel test, but yes. you have a female character who's really pulling that movie through. 
No. What's funny to me about the Pacific Rim thing is they made the Mecho Mori test, <laughs> which is like, does this character in this film have like an arc of their own that doesn't like is doesn't exist to satisfy a male characters? That is like a very good test to have. Like it is good to have like these grades figs. It is just very funny that it definitely only exists because people were butthurt about how Pacific Rim didn't pass the Bechdel test. Because the Bechdel test was just to be like, hey, this is a thing that's happening. I can put this as a litmus and you can just see how many movie, um, movies do not pass that one basic thing. It's yeah. not saying if it doesn't have that one basic thing, it's a bad movie. It's just what the content that's being made and who it's being made for. For is missing a core demographic of society. Yeah, exactly. Like, I think the Bechtel test works fine for what it does, because it's not supposed to be a litmus test for is this feminist or not? It's just a yardstick to demonstrate, like, how far, like, a lot of films fail at, like, you know, like, characterizing their female characters. Yeah, like... Uh, any kind of two-person or small bottle like film is probably not going to pass this, especially if you only have two characters. Hey, we have this amount of films. This is how many films do this thing. Every, if every film did that thing, it also would not be a good thing, I don't think. Yeah. I think it's just saying, hey, we have a, a absence of films that are filling this niche and it's not it's creating not a well-rounded view of the world. Because yeah, for of it. certain. And like, I think Poltergeist is a good example of like how like the Bechtel test is useful because you could have easily made this film without like that conversation between the two characters like this could have been the same film and it didn't have that moment and it like you know anything wouldn't change but it's a really good moment and it like it contextualizes these characters and it does do a lot to center diane as like the person around which this whole story revolves i just really like that her agency is there but she's still allowed to have oh she's still a stay-at-home mom with a husband and three kids but she still has this fire and agency within her character and she's not just the mom she is her own person within this family unit no she is like i've got to be real with you i love this character so much she's like fun she's yeah, snarky she's just, yeah she's so fun and delightful like easily like one of the top cinema milfs of all time to me <laughs> that is very on brand for you yes no the, the like this this is how this is how you know Toby Hooper had his fingerprints in this. Steven Spielberg would not have said no frights this hard. <laughs> and I honestly think I'm really sad. I don't think they really partnered up after this ever again. It was one of those ones that actually felt like it was a really good marriage. No, I, I am going to say picture that one like handshaking meme of this movie and The Incredibles and Craig T. Nelson having a hot, cool MILF wife he's too good for. <laughs> I did not know that was a meme, but thank you for educating me. <laughs> uh, but no, like, I'm not going to say they have romantic chemistry, but they have really good, very believable, like, married chemistry. Mm -hmm. like, they play off each other very well. I do really like the dynamic they have together. Oh, I, I agree. But I was also just talking about the, the direction chemistry between Toby Hooper and Steven Spielberg. Oh, yeah, shit. Sorry. I, <laughs> no worries. I, I get where you were coming from, and it was a good point. Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper really didn't do much together after this. Yeah. And like it makes me a little bit sad because it's fantastic energy. 
No, for sure. Like, this is definitely, I think, the best of both worlds. Kind of like you get like that sort of these little moments of like Spielbergian whimsy. And then at the same time, you also get just sort of cool, creative, weird, messed up horror. Yeah, I absolutely loved a lot of how the house reacted by like pulling stuff from the spirit realm into the the real world. I loved the tree. I love the weird matte painting of the storms. I I love the element you have the the kid who's just counting down to keep track of the lightning because I did that as a kid. Uh, That's something I can also relate to. Also, I definitely did that, too. It's designed to be a film. It's a horror film for the whole family. Like a little kid can watch it with their parents. And yeah, it'll scare them. And yeah, it can scare your parents, but it's a way that you can experiment, experience it together, and you don't get those anymore. Like, every yeah, once yeah. in a while, you used to have the old Disney kind of films that did not quite get this. You have the, the kids' ones that are more goosebumpsy, but we don't get yeah. the family horror film. And I, I do blame that on the PG-13 rating. I'm going to say, I do think it's really good that, like, the PG-13 rating exists, Just because, like, okay, the gulf between what is PG and what is R in the 80s is ridiculous. A man tears his own face off in this movie. It's great. It should have been that way. I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) It's the PG. Oh, God. Because now people go for the PG-13. You can't, because it's the the one that you can give the most people view. So you don't go for the PG where you can, you tone it down a little bit. But you don't go for the full R either. Hence my... Yeah. My thesis like, in many movies were like, keep titties in films. This is true. I think any film can be in- improved by gratuitous nudity. Mm-hmm. One of these times I really want to talk about, this is a tangent a little bit. There's a film called Final Girls, which I stand by. The PG-13 rating hurt the core message of the film. Oh, yeah. PG-13 is terrible for horror. Like, that is... And I say that because I think the emotional crux of that film would have been actually, like, full-on made better with a flashing scene, weirdly enough. And I'll explain that one of these days when I'll make you watch it, but that's a tangent for another day. (laughs) No, you know what? I trust your opinion on this. Thank you. You shouldn't, because I have... I've realized as an adult... Who makes movies? I have really weird opinions on movies that most people don't have. Okay, but those are the best opinions, though. <laughs> like, where would we be if we weren't talking about, like, say, the powerful milf energy of Poltergeist? It's it's an extremely feminist film that's buried in a random, like, a family-friendly ghost film. Yeah. All right. So, what else do we want to discuss here? Zelda Rubenstein. Oh yes, no, sh- no. The in this movie, the family calls in a bunch of paranormal investigators and the paranormal investigators decide they need to call in a psychic. Well, yeah, it makes sense. They have that thing where they have the whole spiel about how, like, I timed this cart moving across the floor for three hours and this is the coolest thing ever caught for, like, paranormal activity in the family. They walk into, the like, the kid's room and then within a second, like, you have all the things flying around and shooting around. Yeah. Like, Okay. <laughs> yep, no. No, I I I love that whole monologue about like the haunted car that just moved across a, like a floor over the course of like there's just great little moments like when they're talking to the neighbor and he's he just goes on like this whole weird monologue about how like oh i never get bit by mosquitoes no one in my family has i don't know about and he's just keeping this conversation going so that they're suffering and getting bitten by the mosquitoes 
Oh, like, there's I, so many small elements where this feels like yeah. a fully fleshed out world. Yeah, like I just love all of these little character moments like that. And like, yes, Zelda Rubenstein. She's fantastic. Yeah, no, she she is she is great in this. Like, well, I feel like she comes in and just all of a sudden the movie feels like she's always been there. She bends the gravity of the movie around herself. Mm hmm. Because. At this point, like, Carol Ann's been missing for a while. She's talking to the family through the television. And then you just have finally someone coming in with a solution. It's not a fun one, but because, like, the family has to do things they don't like. But it's just such a cool, like, Rue Goldberg. Rue Goldberg. The thingies, yeah. where you, you know, I can't word. Help, Amy. Yeah, help. Rube Goldberg. Yeah, you, you, you got it right. Yeah, Rube Goldberg. So it's a Rube Goldberg solution where you have like the rope and the tennis balls, and her being like, "You stay away from that little girl." <laughs> I wish more movies had her in it. Just period. Just she just has like a screen presence. Yeah, no, she's she's very great in this. To say, though, like, I have, like, twofold feelings about her character in the movie, just because I do both really enjoy her performance in this, but also real-life psychics kind of suck. I just want to be blunt about that. Like, this They're is not any... It. Yeah, like, this is not any fault of the movie, but just, like, my knowledge of, like, how, quote-unquote, like, psychics and mediums and mind readers that, like, how they exploit families in the real world with missing children, like, it kind of rubs me the wrong way. Yeah, no, I see what you mean. I do think there is a reading of this movie where... She is actually completely full of shit, but like her script for it just happens to line up with how like things needed to go. Which could be a thing if you didn't see the sequel. Yeah, I, I mean, I haven't. I want to check out the sequels just because like I'm morbidly curious, but I will say they're not as good. But the second one, yes. the there's a like the, the villain in that one is so interesting. Like, yeah. This man is giving an amazing performance and it's I think it's irresponsible to talk about this movie with talking without talking about its production history and how Yes. a lot of people have died or were sick during the making of production. Yeah. Like the sequel, the guy who is filming the villain, he's like stage 4, stage 3 cancer dying and you don't realize mm. that's why he looks so weird and fucked up and yeah. skinny is because this is his last performance. He's literally yeah. dying on screen. I f- I think the like claims about like the poltergeist curse are a little bit like it's it's like some tragic things happened like to like you know, like people working out like it also has to do with like that a lot of the people that died after working this like were young like uh, uh, the like, person yeah. who played the eldest daughter um yes dominic dunn i mean yeah she was murdered by her boyfriend and yeah, no, it's, he basically got away with it yeah, it's genuinely a horrible tragedy, and like it's also a tragedy. Like Heather O'Rourke died very young, and it was just because she was misdiagnosed with Crohn's disease. Yeah, it's one of those things. It's these are things that happen to people. It's not yeah. mystical. It's not. Yeah, oh, like, we used real human bones to film this. Like I'm gonna be real. If you if using real human corpses was cheaper to make a production. I probably would have done that myself. I am glad you brought that up because I did want to talk about the <laughs> ethics of using human remains. There's no control on that market. I'm real on yeah. that. Like, okay, 
I'm I'm going to say like I think if you want to donate your body to science after you die, I think that's a good thing. Like I think you know like that like that kind of stuff is. But the thing is, getting cadavers for these kinds of purposes is an industry. That does mean like there's a lot of very unethical, shady practices involved. I did specifically look up about uh, the bodies, and there was a lawsuit involving like uh, some of like the writers for like the uh, with Spielberg for something. And so somebody did testify. Uh, a special effects artist, a makeup artist, did testify under oath about the bodies and i feel like this was just we have someone under the oath we we can like talk to them about the thing is this has nothing to do with what the disputed but like according to him they acquired like biological surgical skeletons so like he doesn't know where they came from but he believes that the bones were acquired from india okay i did not know like, that you know, like in situations like that where you're getting like body parts from another foreign country, especially one with high rates of poverty, there's essentially no way you can claim that those were sourced ethically is the thing for me. Like, yeah, there's a whole discussion about the fact there's no regulation on buying human bones. You can do it very easily. Yeah. I could go on the Internet and just pay 300 bucks and buy a skull. Yeah, like you, you got like that weird fucking TikTok guy who was just like a room full of like spinal columns and stuff like it's like yeah you can just kind of go out and do this and like a lot of them are sourced you know not super ethically but then you have other productions that like i think is so above um as below where they actually filmed in the catacomb like what is the ethics on that yeah like no i think it's definitely a complicated issue like i don't there's a difference between getting like things from a foreign country versus like, hey, I went to this like random place and they happen to just have all these bones laying around. They've used them yes. for multiple productions. Like essentially, personally speaking, personally for me, I'm like, I don't care what happens to my body after I die. This is just a meat prison I inhabit. Mm-hmm. Uh, like what people are going to do with that after is beyond my control. But at the same time, I acknowledge that this does mean a lot to some people. Like I understand, like, you know, like, like, yeah, like this, this is the sort of thing that is very upsetting. Like, I think, yeah, if I don't think it's necessarily unethical to use a human bones, period, do think just the issues of like the industry behind it are yes. like something you have to be very aware of. There's issues with consent of exactly awareness. Like, like, like I feel like personally me, I'm, I'm down for doubt donating my skeleton use that shit whatever <laughs> exactly yeah like you know like just fucking stuff me in the corner and like in a funny pose i don't care like yeah but for other people like it's the thing is if you stop being alive is that is that body still yours at that point or is it just an object like when yes. do you stop being a, a, a person and start being a thing and I think another aspect of like the, the ethics of that is just the fact that this is literally a movie where mistreating human remains causes the haunting. Which to me, I understand why there's all these conspiracy theories and the like haunted set and bad things happening to people because of this act of transgression in a horror movie because yeah. that's what horror movies, most of their plots are started by. An act of transgression and a forced morality put on that. Like, there's yeah. a morality that's enforced in horror movies that are not enforced in real life that I think a lot of people find comforting because of that. Yeah. Saying there is like a curse surrounding like poltergeist, it's like it's a way of coping. Like like a lot of horrible things happen. Like something very horrible happened to Dominic Dunn and like 
it's just horrible and random and like there's nothing any of us can do to control that it, horrible things happen to like all of like you know like the people involved in this who, who passed away and like saying like oh there's a curse about it like i guess some people like it's just like they need to find something like that is the root of all conspiracy theories i think is just like trying to find something to comfort yourself against like the inherently random. the ra- yeah the random chaotic nature of reality yeah no we as humanity like an explanation we like to yeah. think that there's a reason for why things happen versus someone was just incompetent and the chain of events caused something to happen because of one person's incompetence led to another person's incompetence and it just fell through the crack the cracks yes exactly people will come like try and make sense like try and find patterns out of this and like try and cope but at the end of the day it's like that is all it is it's a coping strategy and like that's not the reality of what happened hmm i mean this brings us back to the foreshadowing of that pool because we have that being built you have the mother character um diane feeling giant fear that her daughter who is having like sleepwalking and weird issues with dreams is going to sleepwalk into it. You have that realization once that it's raining and that flooding and she falls into the pool because you have her fear her daughter would do it. It was really her fear from when she was her age and would sleepwalk. And she's just in there with a bunch of corpses from the cemetery that was never moved. They moved the headstones, but you didn't move the bodies. Emotionally, I get, I get like, it's definitely like it works emotionally for me, but on a literal level, you could not build an entire development without digging up some corpses if like there's an entire cemetery under there. But Amy, did you know, like, that's a thing that did happen a lot. In California yeah, specifically. Yeah, I know. Like, because like literally buildings are always digging up like, you know, like all kinds of stuff. Like dead babies or like corpses from residential things from the yeah, sins like, of our past being buried yeah, within the like, earth. Yeah, yeah, paupers, graves, that sort of thing. Like Yeah. The earth is kind of a metaphor for the sins of humanity being buried beneath and they will eventually always rise to the surface. Yes. There is a detail I noticed, like, that's very interesting. Like, the dead tree in the backyard is not the only one. There's, like, all kinds of, like, just very dead, scraggly trees all over the neighborhood. Like, this is just the rot underneath literally pushing up. I think that's kind of the metaphor of the movie. I know we didn't go into a lot of details on everything, which is kind of interesting. So I think we usually discuss the film a little bit more. I was just going to say this movie again, it's, it's really the good stopping point for a lot of things from modern horror. Not just ghost films, but you have general kind of toy horror in there. You have the fear of death and moving on. You have a lot of elements in this that a lot of people just can put their own story onto it. And it is also a critique a little bit about the morals of capitalism. This is definitely like a movie about like just sort of like the underlying rot. I don't think it's a coincidence that beginning of the film, the patriarch of the family, um, Steve, is reading a book on Ronald Reagan. Yeah, no, literally like there's a reason why like they're talking about profit and housing development and where it's spreading and the sprawl of housing developments. And I know um, this movie is not dealing with it because it's not dealing with the aftermath of how we built housing developments, especially in America. But like you can just see houses for miles, but there's no schools, there's no walking places, there's no commercial buildings to buy grocery stores within this development. It's just a 
urban sprawl of large McMansions. Yeah, like there's a specific scene where like the like head of the like real estate company takes like uh, Craig T. Nelson up on the hill. And he's like, imagine like this view for like a bay window, and it's like he's like, well, yeah, it'd be good for them up there, but like it's gonna kind of suck for the people down in the valley, like you know, like just having their view ruined by all these houses. And then he's like, well, what do you care? We're going to move you into this house. Like, so you don't have to worry about it anymore. The other people down there in all the houses are still gonna. But it's like, who cares? You got your fit. You got yours. You got your money. You know, like, who cares how many literal cemeteries we have to bulldoze? That's kind of the core, like one of the core central messages of the film is you need to acknowledge where you're building, where you come from. And you're not divorced from the reality of the land that you live on. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I know we kind of really glossed over um, the um, teenage uh, daughter's arc because she does have one. It's kind of in the background. And yeah. a lot of this would just be cut in a modern film yeah. as bloke. But I think it really kind of sets the, like, the feel of the family where she's just kind of like, you have that thing where she flips off the construction workers yeah. and her mom's proud of her about it. And she also just like straight up dips when she, at her friend's house during that because her parents. <laughs> yeah, no, like I have to be honest, I kind of feel like the daughter is underdeveloped compared to it. Like it, it makes logical sense to me. Like, yeah, she's going to stay with a friend. But like, I, I kind of feel like the movie doesn't give her the same opportunities to develop as like the rest of the cast does. And I get it. It's a, just a really, it's a long film. And it's Yeah, like, really there's dense. a lot going on. Yeah, like, so I understand sometimes it. Sometimes things like, just fall to, like, the background. But she does yeah. have an arc, no matter how small it is. Oh, absolutely. And I sometimes kind of miss movies having, like, small background arcs that aren't really developed, but they just kind of fill out the world. No, we definitely are at a place where it's, like, a lot of, like, the really major movies these days. It's, like, you know, like, there's so much money being pushed around. Like, can't take any risks with them. This movie did take a risk with the stop motion and how it did special effects. Oh, yeah. Do you want to talk about the special effects for a bit? Yeah, let's talk about the special effects. You know, I love that stuff. Yeah. One of my favorites is just the little the little steak that's just being pulled across the table and wiggling. I I love the like the face effect did not age well. Oh no, for sure. Like But I can see that in like oh, this came from the Indiana Jones films. That's where that effect came from. Yeah. Or the ghost effect coming down the stairs. That's something no. we'd never get nowadays. Oh, yeah, no, I love, like, a lot of, like, the, like, creature effects, like, to get that ethereal, like, effect, like, they would, like, have the puppet in, like, a tank of water to, like, slow the movements and, like, get everything floating around. Yeah. And I love that effect because, like, the first time I saw that effect being used was in one of my favorite movies, A Muppet Christmas Carol. You know a movie I've actually never seen? A Muppet Christmas Carol? I haven't seen a single Muppet movie. We'll have to fix that. I know. I have. We're going to have to start a second podcast where I bully you into watching Muppet movies. I'm down. Uh, I I have a very big hole of Muppets in my life. No, like the uh, like one of the ghosts in uh, Christmas Carol, like they had to submerge the puppet in like a tank of baby oil. So it would look all ethereal and floaty. Oh, baby oil. Yes. And so I love seeing that effect here, too. It's just very cool and creative. Mm -hmm. Now, the effects in this movie, 
by going practical and they took risks like the matte paintings that aren't don't always look as good as some of the other matte paintings during that time period but the fact that they just went for it is something i really like really like yeah no definitely like some like the matte effects and like when like you have like the hand animated ghost effects like they don't age particularly well but there is definitely a lot of characters to them um do you want to talk a little bit about the soundtrack uh first i want to talk about the effect of the house being destroyed at the end of the movie like because that's just that's like even today that's just an amazing effect Mm mm-hmm and like the, the like the way they did it, like the entire model was like attached by like a bunch of strings to just a vacuum behind it. And like they just sucked it backwards and there were like production assistants blasting it with like shotguns to make it fall apart. I honestly love like models and how yes. productions. Oh, you yeah, know, so apparently Spielberg kept the model of that. Like it's just in his house now, like the remains of it. Boy, I do the same thing. Exactly. I want nothing more than to see that fucking model. I want it just so bad. Like, there's just so much. Like, this movie is a labor of love, and you can tell. Yeah, no, it's just... Any other um, kind of effects or anything you want to go over? Uh, no. Uh, do you want to talk about the soundtrack? Yeah. Do you know who did the soundtrack for this movie? Would you like to tell me? Jerry Goldsmith. Oh, right, yes, Jerry Goldsmith. I know him from the Star Trek movies. He didn't just do the movies. Yes. He did. He was a series composer on Next Gen. Oh, yeah. No, like he. He did the theme for that. He did the theme for Voyager. Man did so much for it. Like he did not just that, but he did like Congo, First Contact. He did like Rambo movies. He did so many different movies. No, for sure. Like his work on uh, Wrath of Khan is just genuinely so iconic. I love it a lot. Like this is a man who's just is iconic through what he's done work wise. No, he has an extremely prolific career, like doing soundtrack work. Going back into like 1957. Dang. No, that's impressive. Even stuff... I think he died in 2004. Uh, Correct, yes. His music's still being used in stuff today. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, he did the Universal theme. That's why so much of this stuff is still in there. No, absolutely. Just a very impressive, like, prolific artist. But I weirdly enough feel like I used up all my thoughts on this movie. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no, I think I've covered most of what I feel about it. It's... It is what it is, everybody. Yeah. It'll be an interesting follow-up to It Follows. <laughs> yes. The It Follow-Up. It it Follow-Up. <laughs> <laughs> I promise most of our episodes are more organized than this one, everybody. This is strong. I'm on vacation energy. What were your final thoughts on the film? Uh, so if I had to rate it, I would give it like a 6 out of 10, which seems low. But like, like, I do think it is really like... It is just a good film to sit down with. Like, it's just a very fun entertaining flick with like just a lot of very creative moments and a lot of very like good performances for me this is a film i can put on any time no matter what and enjoy because i've just seen this movie so many times i have to give it like an eight yeah of course that seems fair it's spielbergian so it's nice and warm but it also has like weird fucked up shit that just sneaks in there from Toby Hooper. <laughs> yeah, no, it is it is like the weird contrast between the two that's very entertaining. But it blends. It doesn't feel like it's like a completely different tone. It doesn't feel like artificial intelligence where you have Spielberg trying to do Kubrick's movie style. It, 
they blend really well together. Absolutely. Like there is a, a consistent tone that is built up over the course of the movie. And because and like you have likable characters, you have them solving things and being ingenuous in a way where it kind of feels like you're in on it with the characters. I, I, I'm going to give it a solid like it's a good eight for me. Do you know what time of the, uh, the episode it is now, Amy? Time to roll them bones. Roll the dice. Roll the dice. Got a 19. We are doing... A creature from the Black Lagoon. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, oh, this that's I genuinely love creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh, yeah. Give me that first wave of 3D horror films. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, it is. That's a fun one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm excited for that. 1954. We so. just left such a lasting impression on the American psyche that like would not be fully realized until Guillermo del Toro made Shape of Water. It's one of his best pieces of work that mm. I've seen. I can't talk about stuff I haven't seen. Of course. But, you know, I, I like Shape of Water a lot. I remember seeing that in the Sheetah. This was critiquing... 1980 suburbia through ghosts. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye.